What's up? That other? Nope. Doesn't mean it. Hey. Hey. <laughs> you know, always technical stuff around here. We we had the mystery cat sound again when we hit record it again. It's this weird. Anyway. Are you sure that doesn't do anything? I'm so that, sure. Okay. I'm sure. Okay. Yeah. I'm. It's. It's the. It's oh, for like. Not even plugged into no. <laughs> you guys. Yeah. You we're just. The best. We are. Anyways, welcome to another week of Case Files with Cat <laughs> and Ashley. Thank you guys. Oh I don't my know god. How you guys do it. <laughs> that, that's. Was that Kevin? That was. That was I a had very a, faint Kevin. It. <laughs> <laughs> He won't be faint again. <laughs> oh, God. Did we even say our name? Uh, yeah, we said our name, but we, we didn't did. do like sound checks or anything no. before we started. So <laughs> it's all good. It's all We're not even great. sure this is really recording. At the moment. <laughs> well, I really hope it is. Oh, jeez. Louise. I tried to stop it, restart it. If you guys do ever that. wonder if you could have a podcast, please just obviously. <laughs> no, just that, yes. no. We have set the bar so low. <laughs> For everyone else. But like someone did ask, you know, about starting a podcast. I was like, do you have a budget? Do you have an editor? Do you do you have a wizard? Like, <laughs> what kind of equipment are you using? Because girlfriend. Yes. <laughs> when you po, <laughs> this is what you get. Yeah. <laughs> we are. Great. We're great. We, we are so great. I might have fine. to get up Everything and get another fine. beer in the That's... middle of this because all of a sudden I just I'm sweating all of a sudden like, like um, oh, that yes, was very I, stressful I, two I will, minutes I, will, I was just gonna get more stressful from here so I suggest if you want a beer I'll get, get it I'll um, get it yeah I I will be drinking this evening That's okay um, I drove from forty five minutes to get here today so. Yep and this is this is what you bring us I love all it. Right. <laughs> It's great. Good it's time. great. Good times. So you, so you're good. You're not getting another beer. We can just. Nope. Oh no, we're just gonna. Keep, right. I'm, you'll be talking. I'm gonna get up. You'll hear the refrigerator <laughs> open in the background. We're good. We're good. Okay. So impromptu question of the week. Ooh, I like it. Yeah. What is the craziest way a, a serial killer has that you've read about has been caught? Because holy crap, this the one is craziest crazy. way a serial killer has been caught. Um, like in the stories that you read. Because oh my gosh. Um, or the dumbest. Dude, there's just, you know, like, I guess how they were caught doesn't really, like, come to mind. Um, can you think of any besides, yeah, like... Yeah, the, the uh, one I'm about to no, freaking well, okay, tell you Okay, so that's, that's, that's a lead-in. Yeah, no, that's a segue. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, tell us all about it. What's your story? There is an entire field of forensics called Forensics, Botany, and Ecology. Basically... It's used to identify botanical matter and trace evidence and discover the geographical origins of the plants in question in order to solve serious crimes such as kidnappings, murders, things Ooh, like that. I yes. have an answer too yeah, now. Go. I have an answer. It go. was uh, because Olivia did that CSI forensics yeah. in fourth grade. We were talking about maggots solving yes. crimes. Yes. What? I did you but did you know there was a forensics no. department called No Botany? And, botany. No. And, and, yeah, so like I always think of evidence as like blood spatter. Totally, one hundred percent. One hundred percent weapons, not a fucking daisy on the side of the street or dandelion. Like you just can you imagine planning out the perfect murder 
in a daisy if I could get is to what sends you to prison. <laughs> like that's that basically what happened in this story. Oh my like, god! I mean, not a daisy. Don't give it away. I'm not, but mm-hmm. like, oh. So, anyways, after I tell the story, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that forensics. Yeah. And how it how it came about and stuff because like. Holy crap. Like, I was looking for stories to do, and I didn't want to do another disappearance or a murder case. Um, but it is a... But it is a murder case. It is a murder case. Um, <laughs> but I didn't want to do another disappearance. But it's a murder case because I saw that. And I was like, that is the weirdest way I've ever heard of someone being caught. So, anyway, I know. That is really strange. I had a question for you, but it's go. not as cool. It doesn't go with no, your no, story. No, no, no. Just so go. It's not a good segue. So, never it's mind. Fine. Oh. It's no. fine. Just... No. Okay. Oh, mm-hmm. okay, good. We're just going to skip right on. Um, so again, yeah, that's anyways, this, this story is from the UK, but so real quick before I dive into the story, there is a professor of plant biology at at Southern Illinois University named David Gibson. And he did an interview about, um, like botany and stuff. And he said, botanical evidence is vital when it's used as a part of a larger investigation. And in some cases it can be critical given the recent developments in environmental DNA Contemporary killers should be more worried than ever. If botanical evidence is considered more often than not, it will be the thing that conv- convicts a person. So, whoa! I just wanted to throw that little snippet in there because not again, hair samples because that's not as well. Yeah, but, I think so many of them are so careful about cleaning and taking the hair samples and wearing gloves and stuff. But who who would think about? Grass clippings. <clears throat> so anyways, tonight's story is from the UK. I don't know if our fan favorite, Glenn, still listens, but I'm sure this will be a re- real treat for him because if it's anything like the Island of Wight, um, which if you haven't heard that great episode, it's, it's deeply buried, but I mispronounced the island the entire time. <laughs> the Isle of Wit. <laughs> I tried to look up how to say a lot of these words guys and it was zero help to me and i apologize um i wish that i was a better human being and could speak properly but you know that's just the childhood i had so it is it is it is part of your charm it it is what it is um so this story is kind of a disappearance but also not the main focus um so if everyone's ready um, to ruin their day i'm just gonna get started this is this is trigger warning oh thanks um, I just feel like there should be a blanket trigger warning every episode, but I just in so. case. Um, I think we should. Everything to, okay over there? Trying to hit a gnat. Oh, okay. I thought you were like hitting the recording thing. Like, Nope. <clears throat> Anyways. Guys, I wish you could see what's happening. <laughs> All right. On, on Sunday, August 4th, 2002, at around 11.45 in the morning, 10-year-old Jessica Chapman left her home on Brook Street in Soham to attend a barbecue at the house of her best friend, Holly Wells, who was also 10, and she lived nearby um, in Red House Gardens. So before leaving her home, Jessica informed her parents of her intention to also give her friend a necklace and grade with the letter H because she had just purchased it on a recent family holiday, which is like their vacations. So the girls... Um, they lived pretty close together. They were best friends. Um, they also had a friend named Natalie Parr. They also had a friend named Natalie Parr, and they played computer games. She was at the barbecue. They listened to music. They kind of hung out for about 30 minutes, and then Natalie had to go back home. So at around 3.15, both girls had changed into distinctive replica Manchester United football shirts, one of which belonged to Holly and the other to her older brother, Oliver. 
at around five, a photograph of the two friends uh, was taken by Holly's mother before before the children ate dinner with the other house guest. And how old were they again? I'm sorry. Ten. Okay. (sighs) So they returned to playing in Holly's bedroom until about 6.10 p.m. Around 6.15, the two girls left Holly's house without telling anyone. They were on their way to purchase sweets from a vending machine at the local sports center. While returning to Holly's house, Holly and Jessica walked past the college clothes home of Ian Huntley. Ian Huntley was like the senior caretaker of the local secondary school there. And he um, was known to the girls because his wife was a, she was an assistant teacher at their school. So he apparently lured the girls into his home. He stated that he, so he was outside cleaning his dog when he saw the girls walking Um, they had asked about his girlfriend, Maxine. He told them that she was in the house and that they could go inside. But in actuality, she was away visiting her mother in Grimsby, Lincolnshire. So the exact accounts of what happened once the girls entered his home are unknown because, um, as I'll talk about later, he still swears that he did not intentionally murder them. Um, he, he never gave a motive. So, Oh, 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 so this, this, like, they came in over, he admitted to luring them. Eventually. He said, eventually, oh, eventually. I thought he one changed of them his survived. story. No, he changed oh. his story many times. So, what they've gathered as fact, or at least probable fact. So, they is, were able to, and I'll talk about this more, they were able to piece together what they think happened and what most likely happened. Okay. But even with that, they don't know why he did it. So like, did he, so he admitted to telling them that she was inside the house. Yeah. He eventually, originally he, his original story was that, um, he saw the girls walking off towards the library that he didn't even speak to them, that they were just walking by his house and he saw them go to the library. Um, but anyway, so, um, the accounts of what actually happened are unknown, but investigators believe sections of his story, um, that he said in, an, in his initial interviews did um, did have some truth to it. He said that he was outside cleaning his dog at the time. The girls passed by the house around 6.30 and that one of the girls had been suffering a nosebleed. And that's why he invited them in the house. So his story changed a lot. First, he said that he saw them walk into the library. One time he said he didn't see them at all. One time he said that they did come in the house One time he said they had a nosebleed and that's why she came in the house because he was going to help her with her nosebleed. So his story changed quite a bit. So in in any event, no matter how it happened, what was said, what was exchanged, the cause of death, both girls was later ruled to be asphyxiation. Um, Just Jessica's Nokia. Asphyxiation. Yeah. Jessica's Nokia (laughs) cell phone was switched off at 645 PM that evening. Okay, so 6.15 is when they left the house. 6.15 is when they left the house. 6.46 was the last time their cell phones were on. Oh, my God. So at 8 p.m., Nicola Wells, which was Holly's mother, went into the bedroom to invite the girls to say goodbye to the house guest, only to discover both children were missing. Alarmed, she and her husband, Kevin, searched the house and nearby streets. Minutes after their daughter's 8.30 p.m. curfew had passed, she phoned Jessica's house to ask if the girls were there only to learn Leslie and Sharon Chapman were worried that their daughter had also not returned home. So following like 
you know, that initial panic, they began frantically searching for the girls. Both families were looking for them. They couldn't find them, and they reported both of them missing at 9.55 p.m. that night. So they left their house at 6.15. They just were discovered missing at 8. They were reported missing at 9.55, but they were already, um, they died within 30 minutes of, of leaving the house. So police immediately launched an extensive search for the missing children. There were over 400 officers assigned full-time to search for the girls. These officers conducted extensive house-to-house checks, and their efforts to search local terrain was supported by hundreds of local volunteers, and later U.S. Air Force personnel that were stationed in the U.K. near this also joined the efforts to find the girls. To help their public appeals for information, Cambridgeshire police released the photograph that had been taken of the children less than two hours before their disappearance, the one where they were both wearing the Manchester United jerseys. Um, A physical description of each girl was released to the media, describing them as being white, about four feet, six inches, and slim. Jessica was described as being tanned with shoulder-length brown hair, and Holly was fair with blonde hair. The parents of both girls stated that their daughters had been very weary of talking with strangers, having been warned not to trust people they do not know from early childhood. Um, But again, as we've discussed many, many times, it's always someone you know and, and very rarely someone you don't know. Um, but the this was this statement was supported by the head teacher of St. Andrews Primary School, where the girls attended, who told reporters the danger um, or possible danger from strangers is something that they impressed upon children starting at an early age. So even in interviews, when they would interview, because Ian was very front faced in the media, he wanted to. I be was just about to ask: Is this the guy that was super helpful at the beginning of the investigation? Like maybe he was I mean, on camera off, a it, lot. This guy was on camera a lot, and he would talk about how much. Oh, Jessica would never talk to a stranger. They would never get in the car of a stranger. I remember him from the Madeline McCann. Like they also. Because they used his example to oh. talk about one of the guys that was maybe helping out in the Madeline McCann case, and yeah. then like like that yeah, that was the example. I remember like that the face of the media, oh, um, and I'll talk more. About I remember that. that guy. So suspecting the children had been kidnapped at this point, investigators questioned every single registered sex offender in. Cambridgeshire and neighboring Lincolnshire, over 260 registered sex offenders across the UK, including 15 high-risk pedophiles, were questioned, and all of them were eliminated. Um, Police also investigated the possibility that the girls had arranged to meet someone that had contacted them via an internet chat room, but that was very quickly ruled out. Come on. Hey, I mean, it's, it's possible. They wanted candy. Jesus. Yeah, but nobody knew that. Nobody knew. Nobody that. knew where they, they didn't tell anybody they were leaving. I get. Yes, you're right. I shouldn't <laughs> discount <clears throat> the possibility that it could have been some trafficker yeah. that lured I mean, they, them out. It's they happened. didn't tell anybody that they were leaving the house. They just left. So on August 8th, CCTV footage of the girls recorded minutes before their disappearance was released to the public. The footage depicted them arriving at the sports center at 628 p.m. A televised reconstruction of the children's last known movements was broadcasted nationally on August 10th 
and both sets of parents granted an interview with Colin Baker on ITV's current affair program called Tonight, which was broadcasted on August 12th. Other family members and friends of both girls made uh, multiple TV appearances begging for the safe return of the children. These appearances resulted in over 2,000 phone calls and tips from the public with all information obtained entered into the investigations. Um, they, their database there is called Holmes, like Sherlock Holmes, mm-hmm. and the number two. And the Holmes 2 database is an IT system predominantly used by UK police forces for the investigation of major incidents such as serial murders, high-value frauds, high-profile disappearances. Mm-hmm. So it's like their database. <clears throat> So, shortly after the children's disappearance, Staffordshire police contacted the investigating officers to report their suspicions the girls could have been abducted by the same man responsible for an abduction in their jurisdiction the previous year in which a six-year-old girl had survived an incident, um, an indecent assault, excuse me, had survived an indecent assault by an abductor who was still at large and whose green Ford Mondio had number plates which had earlier been stolen in Peterborough and the person responsible for this abduction and assault was also believed to have followed a 12-year-old girl in the same area although in that instance his car had been fitted with number plates which had been stolen from an another um like another area so both times the um attempted abductions had stolen plates it was the same car different plates are they all connected well, I don't know. We'll oh, God. The same vehicle had recently been sighted in Cambridgeshire, and the information was later included in a televised episode about the children's disappearance on the BBC's Crime Watch, but this potential lead failed to bring any new information. They, they determined that that was not, those incidences were not related to this case. So... Several members of the public reported having seen the children in the early days of the investigation. Mark Tuck informed investigators that as he had been driving past the girls on Sand Street in Soham Town Center at approximately 6.30 p.m. on August 4th, his attention had been drawn toward their Manchester United shirts, causing him to remark to his wife, Lucy, look, there are two little Beckhams over there. A young woman named Karen Greenwood also reported seeing the girls walking arm in arm along College Road about two minutes later. Another woman living in nearby little, and I, I'm really going to butcher this one, Thetford. We'll go with that. Thetford. Sure. I'm really sorry for all of our. Say it again. UK listeners, Little Thetford, claimed, that's what it looks like, claimed to have seen two girls whose appearance and clothing matched those of Wells and Chapman walking past her home in the morning after they had been reported missing. But as we know, that is impossible because they were already dead. So police um, also received statements regarding a suspicious white van that had been seen on the evening of the children's disappearance. And investigators were able to locate and seize this vehicle from a caravan park in Wentworth on August 7th, but that also led to be fruitless. There was nothing, and that van had nothing to do with um, the two girls. So, but there's still the green. There was no, they determined that had that was the case for the six year old and 12 year old, and it didn't have anything to do with this. Okay. Um, On August 12th, police launched a media appeal to trace the driver of a four-door 
dark green saloon car. A taxi driver stated that he had seen him thrashing his arms as he struggled with two young girls inside his vehicle as he drove on the A142, um, which is a street there, around the time that the girls were last seen. This vehicle was last seen turning into the Studlands Park housing estate. So the following evening... A jogger alerted police to two mounds of recently disturbed earth he had seen at Warren Hill, just outside Newmarket. The initial speculation by the jogger had been that these mounds of earth might have been the uh, burial locations of the two missing girls. An overnight examination revealed that the two mounds of earth were badger, like badger nest. So both the um, tip about that four-door car... (sighs) And the tip from the jogger both proved to be nothing related to this case. Stressing me out. I know. It gets worse. So one person who claimed to have spoken with the girls immediately before their disappearance was 28-year-old Ian, who informed investigators on August 5th he had had a brief conversation with both girls on his doorstep the previous afternoon. According to Ian... Holly and Jessica were both happy as Larry, which I'm guessing is the same. Yes, ma'am. They questioned him because why? Um, he just came forward and said he spoke to them after after yeah he he came forward. He Uh, wanted he wanted the police to. I just wanted to to clarify for myself. (laughs) Yeah. Oh. Yeah. He came forward and said he spoke to the girls. Yeah. Okay. One person. Again, who claimed to have spoken with the girls immediately before their disappearance was 28-year-old Ian, who informed investigators on August 5th he did, in fact, have a brief conversation with both girls on his doorstep the previous afternoon. According to Ian, Holly and Jessica, both happy as Larry, had briefly inquired as to whether his girlfriend, Maxine Carr, had been successful in a recent application for a full-time teaching assistant position at their school. When he replied Maxine had not got the job, one of the girls had said, tell her we're sorry, before they both walked along College Street towards a bridge leading towards Clay Street. Now, that was just one of the many things he said, because as I told you before, there was another story where he said one had a nosebleed, one where he said they went to the library, one where he said he didn't speak to him at all. But that was the initial um, statement that he provided. Oh, oh. A lot of of, like details. Yeah. For no reason. Mm -hmm. Like they didn't even question him. He just is like, yeah, I spoke to them. So one person, oh, Mm. excuse me. Um, Police were suspicious of his account. A single police officer searched his house on August 5th, but no incriminating evidence was discovered at that time. But the officer noticed numerous items of clothing on the washing line, despite the fact it had been raining in reference to the, Evident extensive cleaning of the house's interior. Ian stated, excuse the dining room. We had a flood. This officer was unconvinced by Ian's claims and became extremely suspicious of his agitated demeanor. Um, And so at this point, Ian remained a very strong suspect. But they didn't really have evidence because, again, no body, no crime. They didn't see anything in the house that had been very meticulously cleaned. And he was cleaning it. He is on TV. And mind you, he claimed their house flooded, but no one else's house flooded. And everything else was fine. Like the furniture was fine. Everybody was fine except for the clothes on the line and the fact that he cleaned the whole house. Anyways, 
On August 6th. I mean, he's an idiot. On August 6th, Ian drove from Soham to Grimsby to pick up Maxine Carr, his girlfriend who, again, had been visiting her mother. That's a very important fact. She was not there. She, uh, no, I, we knew that. We already knew that. But that comes back into play later. <gasps> so shortly before the two returned to college close, a neighbor of Maxine's mother named Marion Clift saw the couple standing at the rear of the vehicle with the boot open. The boot is the trunk, for those who don't know. So according to Marion, a pale and shaking Ian gazed into the trunk for several moments while Maxine Carr, who stood alongside him, had her hair, head bowed, weeping. When Ian became aware of Marion's presence, he abruptly closed the trunk and they both got in the car. So it's very important that you remember that Maxine was not there, but this this incident happened. So at about 1230 p.m. On the same night, like on that night. The next night. Oh, the next night. Okay. <clears throat> so at about 1230 p.m. Oh on August God. 17th, now this is like weeks, like two weeks later, a 48-year-old game, uh, gamekeeper named Keith Pryor discovered the bodies of both girls lying side by side in a five-foot-deep irrigation ditch close to a pheasant pen near the perimeter fence of RAF Lakin Heath in Suffolk, Suffolk. I don't know. I'm sorry, guys. More than 10 miles east of Soham. So, <laughs> so, so, um, that's, that's how you say that one. I don't know how to say the other ones, guys. I'm really sorry. Okay, uh, moving forward. Just, uh, keep making fun of my childhood trauma. Nope, nope. Um, Pryor had noticed what he later described as an unusual and unpleasant smell in the area several days earlier. When returning to the area with two friends on August 17th, he had decided to investigate the cause of this odor because it had gotten worse. So walking through an overgrown verge of about 600 yards wow. from a partially tarmacked road, Pryor and one of his companions, Adrian Lawrence, discovered the children's bodies. 600 yards and he could smell it? Mm-hmm. Wow. Imagine how bad that must have smelled. I think maybe when they originally smelt it, they, it was, they were probably closer. They were jogging. Like, they were using... You know oh. what I mean? But... but um, he was walking like he decided to figure out what the smell was because it was getting progressively worse now oh wow so anyways he so as soon as he saw the bodies he immediately turned to his girlfriend helen sawyer and shouted don't come any closer get back in the van and they immediately called and reported the discovery of the bodies both girls have been missing for 13 days at this point and their corpses were in advanced state of decomposition probably had animals in an mm. apparent effort to destroy forensic evidence the murderer or murderers had attempted to burn both bodies oh my god no clear footprints were discovered at the time at the crime scene despite this investigators rapidly deduced when the two victims most likely were and that like when they excuse me who they rapidly deduced who the two victims most likely were and that they had not died at the location of their discovery. Numerous hairs later determined to belong to Jessica were discovered on a tree branch close to the location of the girls' bodies. The following day, 
Cambridgeshire Deputy Chief Constable Keith Hodder released a press statement to the media confirming the discovery of the children's bodies, adding that both families had been informed of the developments, and although positive formal identification would take several days, investigators were as certain as they possibly could be that the bodies were Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman. On August 21st, the bodies of both girls were identified via DNA testing. Nine days later, there was a public memorial service held at Eli Cathedral for both girls, and this service was attended by about 2,000 people, including the girls' classmates, teachers, and the six family um, officers, like the um, ones who were with the family who had provided 24-hour service for both families. The Reverend Tim Jones officiated at this service saying, would not the best and most lasting memorial to these two lovely young girls be a change for the better in how we behave towards each other? Today's service is a small milestone in our shared journey of grief and sorrow. It is our hope that we may perhaps draw a line under one phase of our grieving and begin to look forward. An, un, an online book of condolences attracted more than 31,000 messages of grief and sympathy. And on August 24th, football clubs across Brent held a minute of silence before their games. In the weeks following the disappearance, Ian suddenly became very reluctant, reluctant to speak. But he did grant several television interviews to media outlets such as Sky News and the regional BBC News program BBC Look East, speaking of the general shock in the local community and his dismay at being the last person to see the children alive. Oh my God. What a dick. By the second week of the children's disappearance, Ian had become an unofficial spokesman for the community. His explanation for this was that he wanted to convey to the media the frustration and the despair the community was feeling. In one interview with Sky News correspondent Jeremy Thompson, during the second week of the search, he claimed to be holding on to a glimmer of hope the children would be found safe and well, and that he had last seen the girls walking in the direction of the local library. So he made himself these spokesmen for this community and talking about how frustrating it was and how sad it was that they could not figure out who did this and why they did it. All the meanwhile, it was fucking him. Maxine Carr, the girlfriend of Ian, was also interviewed by the press during the second week of the search for the children. In this live interview, Maxine backed up Ian's claims to have conversed with the children on the doorstep as she had been bathing before both girls had walked away from their doorstep. Wait a minute. She was claiming she was home. Now she was saying, basically she was making it so that at no point was Ian alone. So she said, um, I only wish we had asked them where they were going. If only we knew then what we know now, then we could have stopped them or done something about it. I'm over here crying, y'all. I don't have, like, allergies or whatever. I'm just, like, I'm so upset. I'm so, so mad I'm crying, you know? Like, yeah. Ugh, this so is after, so sad. after the original, when the police came to his house and, and you know, did that walkthrough and he made that shit up about it flooding, Ian became nervous. And so Maxine, obviously, was was now his alibi. He She was not actually at her mother's. She was actually there, is what he told, was what she said. So what's the truth? 
she I feel was at like, her mother's. I feel like she was at her mother's and he called her that night and was like, He went and picked her to, up. You, yeah. you gotta come home. Yeah, he went and picked her up. So, but now, like I said, she claims they were home and they wish they had known where the girls were going because they could have done something about it. Shame on her. Shame on her. Discussing the personalities of the girls, Maxine described Wells as being the more feminine of the two, adding that Jessica was more of a tomboy. And then on one occasion, she had jokingly remarked to Jessica how unlike many of her friends, she seldom wore a skirt. To this question, Maxine stated that the children had expressed her desire to be a bridesmaid at her own future wedding, adding that Jessica had said she would willingly wear a dress for such an occasion. Maxine could also, excuse me, Maxine also displayed a thank you card to this reporter, which had recently been given to her by Holly on the last days of the school year, referring to Holly and Jessica continuously in the past tense. Maxine stated she was just lovely, really lovely. And then before making a direct appeal to children, just get on the phone and just come home. Or if somebody's got them, just let them go. So obviously this interview was done. Was she saying this one was the more feminine? Oh, tomboy. This one was the tomboy and this one was the more. But this interview obviously was done like during the disappearance. I don't know if you guys caught that. But so during these interviews, before the bodies were found, when Ian made himself a spokesperson, Maxine was already referring to the children in past tense. Which is just huge red flag. So by the second week of the children's disappearance, which is um, what I said is when he became the spokesperson and Maxine did this interview, really weird interview by describing the children as feminine and tomboy and talking about not wearing skirt. It was a weird interview. You can hear the interview. It was weird. Um, Anyways. Like what does that have to do with anything? Yeah. And, um, and why are you referring them in past tense? Like they could still be alive. They really wanted to be a part of my wedding. Like, (laughs) and so by the, it's not about you. (laughs) So around this point, Ian had begun to lose weight and was displaying visible signs of insomnia. And to one officer, he said, you think I've done it? I was the last person to see them before beginning to weep. And his erratic behavior and apparent distress led to him being prescribed antidepressants on August 13th, the there was still five days at this point, no, four days before the girls were discovered at this point. So he was already losing his shit and the girls hadn't even been discovered. Okay. Holy shit. So having participated in the search for the children, Ian regularly asked police officers questions such as how their investigation was progressing, how long DNA evidence could survive before deteriorating. One of these officers observed three vertical scratches on Ian's left jaw, each measuring about 1.2 inches, which he claimed had recently inflicted, which had been recently inflicted by his dog. So he injected himself in the searches. He was asking all these random weird questions, which if you did it, why would you be making yourself more of a red flag? But whatever. Um, So on August 16th, the day before they were discovered, um, Ian and Maxine were first questioned again, or they, they were like questioned as suspects basically at this point by the police. Both were questioned for approximately seven hours. Each provided witness statements before being placed in a safe house, um, which I don't know why they had to be in a safe house. By this date, police had received information from several Grimsby residences who had recognized Ian in the television interviews he had given and recall that he had previously been accused of rape several years earlier. And, 
And with that, I would like to know, because I did some research on that, that um, he fathered a child with a 15-year-old girl who had moved in with him at one point, and between 1995 and 1996, he established numerous sexual re- sexual relationships with girls. There were three who were 15, and one was that 13. And how old was he? He was, like, in his, I think, 30s at that point. <laughs> he was not charged with any of these because none of those teenage girls would file reports. And apparently it doesn't work the same way over there as it does here. I don't know. But it said, it specifically said he was not charged for those because the, the, the girls would not file charges against him. So I don't know if like the parents can't file or anyways, but so he had a history with young teenage women. He, he, well, they just got younger. He determined, he said in one of the interviews about the, like at that time when he was being acute, like when he got that 15 year old pregnant, he said they were all consensual. They all wanted to motherfucker. According Let to the reports, the girls wouldn't him. file reports because they said it was consensual. According to them, the 15 year olds. And, and you know what? Talk to them now. How long, how many years has it been? How, a decade? <clears throat> Talk to them now. And they're going to be like, yeah. yeah, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing at 15. Yeah. I thought I knew shit. I didn't know shit. So back to this particular case, other witnesses said that contrary to her televised claims, Maxine had actually not been there because they had witnessed her socializing at a bar in a, uh, in the Grimsby town center on the night, the girls disappeared and had not been home. Like she said to police and to the media, there were many witnesses who saw her at the bar. Oh, so it wasn't just like one person who was like, no, yeah. So the same evening, police conducted a thorough search of their college close home and the grounds of the college where Ian worked as a senior caretaker at the couple's, um, excuse me, as the couple remained under police watch at separate locations. Each room of Ian's home had been evident, excuse me, each room of Ian's home had evidently been recently and meticulously cleaned with what was later described as being a lemony cleaning fluid, but the search of the home revealed many items of major importance to the investigation. The evidence and artifacts were not made public at the time, but the items recovered from the school grounds included items of clothing the girls had been wearing when last seen. They're <gasps> charred. They didn't burn the clothes, but they burned the bodies. Their charred and cut Manchester United shirts were also recovered from a trash can in a hanger at Ian's place of work. So they tried to burn the clothes, but they left them in a trash can where he worked. Fibers recovered from these garments were a precise match to samples retrieved from Ian's body and clothing, as well as his home. And his fingerprints were recovered from that trash can where the clothes were. But they couldn't really use that because that was his workplace and he was the caretaker. So they said his fingerprints would obviously be on things but they were there ian's car was for who the fuck who the fuck had else who who the fuck else had access to that stuff though i'm just saying they said it was really hard to say that he was they 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 said it was really hard to use the fingerprints recovered from the trash can just because it was his workplace I guess like it, and his fingerprints were in his own car kind yeah. of a thing. Yeah. So Ian's car was also forensically examined on August 16th. This revealed that the car had also been recently and extensively cleaned. 
but traces of the mixture of brick dust, chalk, and concrete of the same type used to pave the road leading to where the girls' bodies would be discovered were found around the wheel arches and on and around the pedals. A cover from the rear seat was missing, and the lining <gasps> of the trunk smart. had recently removed and replaced an ill-fitting section of household carpet. So this is still the day before, but they so had already... They, so this crazy asphalt or whatever dust from the road is on, was all over all, his car. All over the car. But it, this is interesting. On the pedal... That's, you don't, you know, you think about, you, you, that's, did you not, get, that's not even what convicted I them. know, but like, did yeah. you get under the pedal? You know, yeah. like when you think about cleaning, and I'm not giving anybody hints here on how to give, get away with a murder. But it said the dust was everywhere. I mean, you don't even think about, you, you think it looks clean. You're like, it's clean, but you, you can't get it all. Yeah. But, um, a cover from the rear seat was missing. The lining of the trunk had been recently removed and replaced with the ill-fitting section of household carpet. Red flag. So having discovered the children's clothes at the college, police decided to arrest both of them, even though the bodies had not at this moment been discovered. One day before, hours before at this point. Both were arrested on suspicion and abduction and murder at 4.30 a.m. August 17th, which is the day the bodies were discovered, but they were discovered later in the day. <gasps> wow. Investigators had stated on August 7th they strongly believed the children had been abducted and announced their strong suspicion that both girls had been murdered on the same date. So they did determine that that most likely Ian took them and killed them same day, which true came to be true, like within 20 minutes of them leaving the local center. Because the CCTV, the CCTV footage saw them at the local center at 620 her phone was shut off at 6.48 or 6.46, whatever. Um, okay. So during initial questioning, Ian refused to answer questions and appeared evasive, confused, and emotionally detached, occasionally drooling during police attempts to question him in an effort to fake mental illness. <laughs> this left police with no option but to refer Ian to a mental hospital to undergo an extensive psychological evaluation. By contrast, Maxine quickly confessed to detectives she had lied about her whereabouts and her partner's actions on August 4th as shortly before she had returned to their home from Grimsby three days later. Please tell me she goes to jail. Fuck. Ian had claimed to her in a phone call to have seen the two girls shortly before their disappearance, admitting, the thing is, Maxine, they came in our house. According to Maxine, oh. Ian then informed her the children had entered their home in order so that Holly could could stop her nosebleed. He then claimed to Maxine that Jessica had sat on their bed as he had helped Holly control the bleeding from her nose before both girls had left their home. Referencing one of those 1998 rapes that I mentioned earlier, he had committed, but had earlier claimed to her to have been falsely accused of that in the phone call. Ian then began voicing concerns as to again being falsely accused of the involvement of this occasion, also claiming his previous arrest had caused him to suffer a nervous breakdown. So he was basically telling Maxine, they're going to accuse me of doing this. I didn't really do it. I didn't do the, the rape that I was accused of in 1998. I didn't do that. I just keep falsely getting accused of these things. They were in our house. They did sit on our bed, but they left the house alive is what he told her. 
She then, therefore, later agreed to concoct a false story with Ian to support his version what? of events. And not once was she like, you know what, motherfucker? I think you might have done something to them. Because that's a little bit convenient. I mean, either you I want have to the remind worst people luck, that the worst luck, or... I want to remind people that when he picked her up, the, the bodies were in the trunk. So she knew she knew they were dead. She knew he did it when she backed up this story. He picked her up. I that's what he was showing. Part. I forgot that's what about he was that showing part. her the in lady, the trunk. And the lady saw her crying and sobbing. And so by the time she was questioned, she had already made up this story. So after being informed of throw the, the book at her, God, after being, Oh, you're going to be really pissed after being informed of the discovery of the children's bodies and the evidence of Ian's guilt, including his fingerprints being recovered from the trash bin in which the children's clothing had been found. Maxine burst in tears shouting. No, he can't have been, it can't have been. He hasn't done it. Despite these revelations, you Maxine saw them dead. Dude. Maxine initially remained emotionally attached to Ian and professed her belief in his innocence to both the police and her family. Oh, it gets worse. By oh August God. 20th, investigators had established sufficient physical evidence from Ian's home in his vehicle and the college to charge him with two counts of murder. He was charged with these offenses while detained for observation at Rampton Secure Hospital. And all preliminary hearings against him were postponed until the conclusion of his mental health assessment. Maxine was charged with attempt to pervert the course of justice on this date. She was further charged with two counts of assisting an offender on January 17th. She helped try to burn the bodies. Just, I, I, don't, I don't know if I add that in later, so I just thought I would tell you what now. What the fuck? She, she, so, this this mm. story makes me... I, I'm like... I don't remember if I add. There's so Miming, much information. Throwing the table at you. I'm only on like page seven out of 11 and I cut a lot of shit out. So I'm I don't flipping. remember if I added that, but she, it, I think it was her idea to try and burn the bodies, but she was definitely there. So she definitely knew what happened. She doesn't know how they died, but she knew he was he abusive to her. Was no, he, she was fucking psycho herself i think well i mean i'm just trying to figure no, out like nothing, she just had nothing, super low self-esteem and just I, i'm not going to excuse her behavior in any way because i don't know be, oh nothing God. at all said she was abused i'm not, ex I'm not excusing she her was behavior. at a bar drinking like mm, mm -hmm. just fine and then he showed up with this and she concocted this whole story and helped him try to get rid of the body and you know try to defend him Anyways, Good friends help you move. Real friends help you move bodies or something like that. What's that saying? While held on remand at Holloway Prison, Maxine regularly asked about Ian's welfare and wrote several letters in which she professed her continued love for him. Maxine only severed contact with Ian in December 2002. Wow. So there's a lot of information about the trials. Um, I'm just going to kind of briefly talk about some of it. I mean, you can look it up. There was a, a ton of stuff. The trial started on November 5th, 2003, and Ian's official charges were two counts of murder to which he pled not guilty, and Maxine was charged with two counts of assisting an offender and one count of perverting the course of justice. Um so basically, in the opening statements on behalf of the Crown Prosecutor Richard 
uh, Latham described the last day of their friends' lives and how by pure chance they happened by Ian's home at the time when Maxine was not present. He contended Ian had deliberately lured them into the house around 637 and that both girls had been murdered shortly thereafter with cell phone site analysis showing that um, he had switched off Jessica's phone either outside of his home or within the grounds of the college shortly after the girls had been murdered. Wow. He described how the phone records and eyewitnesses accounts placed uh, Maxine in Grimsby on the evening in question, showing the statement she had given to police and the press had been false. He outlined details of Keith Pryor and his two friends had discovered the bodies. Wow. Um, The location where the bodies were discovered was a known location for Ian and his plane spotting hobby. And so... he was really familiar with the area and he they say he most likely hid the bodies there thinking they would not be discovered because it was a very isolated um area where most people didn't go referencing the likely motive because again he refused to give one he still said he didn't kill them um it said that due to extensive state of decomposition of the bodies, they couldn't determine the precise cause of death other than what I stated earlier or whether the girls had been sexually assaulted before or after death. And neither body showed signs of com- compressive neck injuries, knife wounds, drugging, or poisoning. Um, like I said, they have been basically suffocated. They both, they most likely died of a suffocation. They don't actually know if that's how they died. They just assume that's how they died because they couldn't tell. And he, again wouldn't say um in reference to ian's claims eventually ian came around and said both of the deaths were accidental still didn't give a motive um he and the the uh, prosecutor said only one person knows what happened after the girls entered his home and um he said quite frankly 10 year old girls don't just drop dead this was not an accidental murder this was not an accidental death um so The trial goes on and on. There's a lot of testimony, um, you know, a bunch of Ian saying he didn't do it. He didn't mean for them to die, blah, blah, blah. Lots of, you know, excuses. He said that um, according to Ian, he, uh, he, Holly and Jessica had entered his bathroom to stem the nosebleed because this was he was on and on about this nosebleed to stem the, the nosebleed that Holly had been suffering when the girls had walked by his home. The bath was already filled with water as he had been cleaning his dog that afternoon in the bathroom. He claims he slipped and accidentally knocked Holly into the bath while helping her with her nosebleed and that this unintentional act had caused her to drown as he panicked and froze. He further claimed Jessica had witnessed the accident and began repeatedly screaming, you pushed her. And then he had then accidentally suffocated her while attempting to stifle her screaming, which had preoccupied his attention as opposed to ensuring uh, that Holly did not drown. So by the time his state of panic had weared off, it had been too late to save the lives of either of the children. And that was his first coherent memory. Had uh, The first coherent memory he had was sitting on his vomit-stained landing close to Jessica's body. When they asked him, well, why didn't you do anything about it? Why didn't you call emergency services? Um, Why did you do all the things you did? He insisted he had become preoccupied with whether the police and the public would believe the girls had been accidental. And he had decided to conceal all evidence of the deaths as opposed to notifying the police or the paramedics. Weeping Ian admitted responsibility for the deaths finally, but repeated that it was accidental. It was not intentional. He didn't mean to do it. Um, he tearfully claimed he had not attempted to fake insanity upon his arrest. He insisted that the trauma of the children's death had 
temporarily erased his memory and being in the presence of police had caused his mind to temporarily seize. Maxine went into the witness box to testify for herself, basically saying that, you know, she wanted him to be okay because she, they were going to start a family, all this crap. I'm, I'm not even going to justify reading all of it because honestly, it's all crap. So over the course of three days, the lawyers outlined the efforts of both defendants to divert suspicion away from Ian and that Ian's own efforts to destroy all physical and circumstantial evidence linking him to the crime. But despite these efforts, investigators had retrieved enough evidence to show the children had been murdered within his home and with 12 hours of their death had been transported in his vehicle to the location where the bodies were discovered on August 17th. This had included fiber evidence retrieved from his vehicle, clothes and carpets, which had been a precise match to the Manchester United shirts the girls had been wearing. And the prosecutor then closed his statement by again bringing the jury's attention to Ian's claim that both deaths had been accidental remarking we posed the question two of them he then speculated ian's defense counsel may try and argue that ian had been confused commenting in that case that would have to they would have to consider ian's behavior over the fortnight between the girl's disappearance and their bodies being found basically saying okay one death accidental but two deaths and then it was accidental but you took the time to hide them ask questions be the media do all this stuff there was no way no way so testimony relating to the forensic evidence linking Ian was heard on November 24th. And on this date, a forensic scientist named Helen Davy testified about the biological evidence recovered from the girl's clothing, footwear, and a dishcloth discovered in the hangar of the college where he worked on August 16th. Davy testified she had found minute traces of blood and saliva on the objects, but no traces of semen. So it is said that she, they don't think they were sexually assaulted. She examined the reason for the lack of any traces of semen being discovered could have been a result of the charred and melted condition of the article she had inspected, though, so it is still a possibility he sexually assaulted them. A crime officer also testified that despite Ian's exhaustive efforts to remove physical evidence of the crime from his home, a forensics exam had revealed several traces of blood splattering, blood spattering across the hallway and main entrance to the master bedroom. So that contradicted his thing of, oh, she slipped and fell in the bathtub and I accidentally suffocated the other one while she was screaming. So again, they don't actually know what happened inside the house. They, they know it wasn't an accident. They don't know how he murdered them. They charred the bodies. They couldn't tell. But what was brought into evidence that would lead to the conviction of Ian as undisputable was a discovery made by forensic botanist named Patricia Wiltshire. During the investigation in press photographs, the police noticed new tires on Ian's car, and when they tracked down the old ones, they found forensic evidence linking the car to the area the girls were disposed of. Forensics botanist Prof uh, Professor Patricia Wiltshire was one of those who played a key role in proving Ian had been at the site where Holly and Jessica's bodies were found. She established that the pollen found on Ian's shoes and his and the pollen found on his car were the exact match type as the scene. She found that the approach path, like where he walked to and from the ditch by looking at trampled nettles, which are like uh, plants. The plants helped because Ian had put the girl's clothing in a bin and tried to burn them back at the school. And lo and behold, it was covered in little bits of vegetation from where the girls had been laid, she said. I found pollen grains and spores that were characteristic of that particular site. I checked other sites and they were not characteristic of those sites. Only this one. 
There were many, many markers in terms of pollen grains and spores on Ian's shoes and his vehicle that firmly put him in this spot, not just once, but twice, because he had been back to check on the bodies. I found pollen, uh, excuse me, she said, um, Ian never gave a motive for the murders. Um, You know, he stated that right before the girls walked by the house, he had just been, had a big argument with Maxine on the phone. And even now he won't give a reason for what he did. So blame the girlfriend. What a fuck. So a side note about (laughs) where we, a side note about where I said um, the fact that the, the uh, forensics, botanist knew the path from looking at the trampled nettles is because she said or needles because she said they actually when he stepped on them started growing a different direction and so she could actually tell how long the girl she's the one that said they've been here for 13 days somebody stepped here and so it was her forensics evidence that was so damning that there was no way he could justify um that he didn't, he didn't do it. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? Wow. So I'm going to talk more about her later. So anyways, like I said, Ian never gave a motive. Again, he still claimed it was accidental. Um, he did say like they had a big, like right before the girls, he claimed him and Maxine had a giant fight. He slammed the phone down, went outside to cool off. And that's when he saw the girls. The jury deliberated for four days before reaching their verdicts against both defendants. Oh my God. On December 17th, 2003, they returned a majority verdict of guilty on two counts of murder against Ian. He was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of imprisonment to be imposed by the Lord Chief Justice at a later date. Ian's face showed no emotions as the verdict was announced, but the mothers of both Holly and Jessica burst into tears. Maxine pleaded guilty to the charge of perverting the course of justice, but not guilty to the charge of assisting an offender. The jury accepted her insistence that she had only lied to the police and the media in order to protect Ian because prior to their arrest, she had believed his claims of innocence. As such, she was found not guilty on assisting an offender. Maxine was sentenced to serve three and a half years in prison. Minutes after their convictions, the parents of both girls granted an interview to the media discussing Ian's mindset, to which Leslie Chapman, which was um, Jessica's mom, or Jessica's family said, I think he, he was a time bomb waiting to go off and both of our girls were in the wrong place at the wrong time. I hope the next time I see him, it will be like we saw our daughters and it will be in a coffin. On September 29th, 2005, High Court Judge Mr. Justice Moses announced that Ian must remain in prison until he served a minimum of 40 years imprisonment, uh, imprisonment, a term which would not allow parole eligibility until 2042, by which time he would be 68 years old. In setting this minimum oh, term... so he was only 28 when this happened. Yeah, I was thinking oh, he was in his 30s, so I'm no, sorry about that. he was young. Okay. In, in setting this minimum term of imprisonment, Mr. Justice Moses stated, the order I make offers little or no hope of the defendant's eventual release. Ian avoided eligibility for a whole life tariff on the passing of the Criminal Justice Act 2003 had been one day after his conviction, thus taking effort on December 18th, 2003, and applying solely to murders committed on or after this date. So basically, they couldn't give him a life sentence because the law literally passed the day after he was convicted. Oh. Ian is still currently in prison, but here's where it gets real fucked. Maxine. Oh, it wasn't fucked no, before. No, it was fucked. But, okay, but now it's but, like super but, fucked. 
So he's serving prison. He's still in prison. But Maxine served half of her sentence and was released on May 14th, 2004 with a new secret identity. The high court made an injunction to protect her new identity in 2005 with Mr. Judge Edie saying such an order was necessary to protect her life and limb and psychological health. Fuck (sighs) her. Fuck her and her identity. She fucking helped burn those children. She helped burn those She kids. knew those... He, she knew he did it. If she says she didn't help burn the children, fine. You knew he did it. You tried to lie for him. You tried to cover up for him. And you, you're an adult, and you know very fucking well so, what's right and wrong. God damn. Holly's parents have spoken Ooh, out often. I'm just, of, like, cussing like a sailor today. Sorry, y'all. God, I'm, this, this story makes me mad. I know. Holly's parents have spoken out often about their loss, but say they have tried to move on for the sake of their son, Oliver. <gasps> oh, that's They still right. live in the same town. In a 2012 interview, Oliver said he thought about Holly frequently. He was... 12 at the time of her murder he said that he thought about her frequently saying i wish i could see her now see what she'd have looked like we do chat about her quite regularly which i think is a very nice thing it's strange being three of us when there used to be a fourth Mm. mr wells holly's father has become a founding patron of the charity grief encounter which he said helped the family with their loss so jessica's parents they rarely they rarely spoke in the public since their daughter's death. They did break their silence in 2012 to hail the first anniversary of the police national database, which was introduced after Jessica and Holly's death. It was introduced to close gaps in information yes. sharing between police forces. Why and- don't we do this everywhere? Like everywhere. Gosh, Jessica had two older sisters, Rebecca and Allison, but they were kept out of the public eye. So little is known about them. Okay, so that story was fucking awful, but I wanted to end it on a little bit of a good note. So I wanted to talk about Patricia for a minute. Um, Patricia Wilshire has been a forensic investigator for some of the most high-profile murder and stranger rape cases in the UK. She is or was the only forensics botanist in the UK to specialize in the location of human remains and the linking of offenders to the scene of the crime. She, she at the time of this article, she was the only one who could do this. So she was highly sought after. So, and this, the case with Ian was actually like the case that broke her career. Like she, that's when she became like highly requested and started really, she was in her fifties at the time that that case came around. So her, so she's long since retired at this oh, point, yeah. but so, I hope well, she's she taught still, other she people. Still, she still will take cases occasionally, but so she overcame a lot of tragedy in her life to become this forensics expert and she is a major supporter of women and girls in science. Like, she pushes, like, really trying to get them to, to be in the science field. Excuse me. So her personal tragedies, you know, she had a very devastating accident when she was a child of hot cooking oil. She was trying to, like, pop out and surprise her mom, not knowing her mom was carrying a pot of boiling oil, like, after making chips. And it was a really, it spilled all over her. She ran away from home before finishing A-levels, which is like the equivalent of AP classes in high school here. And she also suffered the loss of her only child who died after only 19 months from a very rare inherited disease. She said that this experience helped her cope with the truly, truly horrible things she dealt with through her work, saying nothing else is as horrible. So I think that experience has made me very strong. She went on in an interview to say, I've had to work on babies and an awful thing is getting samples. But I look at that baby and I think you shouldn't have died. So let's let's find out 
who who did this to you? Let's find out. Let's find the person who made you die. So she's currently 78 years old and is still in great demand, although she says the fact crime investigation is very physically taxing is a reason why she doesn't take as many cases anymore. Um, in an interview, she asked what would be her advice to her younger self and to other women and girls who might be considering a career in science. And it's a response that we hear often, and it was one which indicates how women tend to have less self-belief than men and don't promote their own achievements. They spend their lives trying to help other people. And she said, my advice would be to have more self-esteem and be confident in yourself because I wasn't given any help to, to get self-esteem when I was young. And I think I'm too modest sometimes compared to other people. She says, I try not to blow my own trumpet because I find that distasteful, but perhaps maybe I should. I've never looked for the fame or notary of people being interested in me. It always comes to me. So after she published her memoirs last year, she has a film company that is going to make a story about her life and her only stipulation is the central character must be a female and so that is my story about this case forensics botany which i had no idea about and miss patricia wiltshire who is amazing so it's hard it's hard to enjoy that ending when i know the, beginning the story was so like, awful so but awful. i just oh that's why i wanted to end up talking about her because she was really really amazing that is amazing and and I love that there's going to be a story about her and hopefully that inspires other young women. And I'm pretty sure she helped solve some of the other cases we may have talked about or had talked about talking. I mean, she has solved some high profile wow. cases wow. with botany and, and stuff. So. That's intense. Yeah. That is definitely intense. I don't think botany has solved any of my crimes. I know when I was looking at some of the crimes she had solved, um, and I don't want to give it away in case we do do the stories, but they were very high profile cases. That no most one's going to people... remember. Well, yeah. <laughs> no, there'll be that one person who be like, you already talked about it. No, nope, we, did. we didn't. We didn't. We didn't talk so about that. Just a mention. It's yeah. a mention. So I'll just say she has solved some very high profile cases overseas. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, um, I, your story made me cry. I know. I, got, well, I wanted to flip the table. I was about to flip the table. I was like, oh, I'm just going to flip the table. And you're, you wouldn't have been able to read the rest of it. Um, but uh, wow. I, rem I, I specifically remember as soon as I like Ian Huntley, I know that name. I know that name. And then you were like, and then he started to talk to the press. I was like, oh. I know that guy because I specifically remember they used him as an example like oh you're trying to help the police that's not a fucking red flag yeah. yep he tried to help them and then he started faking that he was insane and having this mental breakdown and, and all the, of a sudden yeah. the drooling I mean really dude really? he claims he didn't fake it he says that his memory went totally blank after murdering the children and he just woke up excuse me accidentally murdering the children and he just woke up with no memory of what happened okay but when you're in, an, in a police interview after a week or so and you're like drooling all of a sudden that's the like i get i get you know you know what actually today today we went to go take care of some estate stuff with my mom and jason says pull up that spreadsheet that you made with all of the expenses and i was like on what and he was like drive or whatever and I was like I made a spreadsheet on drive and I sure shit made a spreadsheet on drive of all of these expenses and Jason added in and I was like I don't remember doing that 
And I really have no memory of doing that. And I was like, I'm nervous that I, that I have no, I literally right now, I kid you fucking not. I have no memory of doing that. And I I think I was just on autopilot. But you were grieving. This man. I was in the middle of grief. It's true. But like what. This man did not have a mental illness. He was not schizophrenic. He was not on drugs. He wasn't drinking. He had an argument with his girlfriend. He had been. And then he he killed somebody. He had a whole history of raping young women and fathering children with young women and claiming it was consensual. All I'm saying is that trauma and that, that was probably the first time he's ever killed anybody i mean i mean but either way i don't care if he claims he doesn't remember it he wasn't an accident they found blood splatter all over his house it wasn't an accident he's guilty and then you accidentally slipped she fell in the tub and she drowned why were you trying to clean up a with the in the tub no 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 he said the tub had water in it already because he had bathed his dog earlier even though the other story said he was outside bathing his dog outside would you keep the water i'm just telling you what he said he said that she he slipped which pushed her into the tub and he froze and she drowned. And then Jessica started screaming. So he ran to Jessica to cover her mouth, to keep her from screaming, which suffocated her. And meanwhile, he forgot to go check on Holly and she drowned during the whole process. And he said, I wonder if some of that is not 100% true. They found blood splatter all over his house, but that could have been Jessica's. You know, like that could, I feel like that he slipped and Holly fell in the tub and just automatically drowned on her own. I think he pushed her and I think he killed her in that bathroom. I don't think anything he said was true. I mean, other than they were all in the house. Something was true. Something of that had to be true. Well, they said the only thing that they felt may be true was that Holly had a nosebleed and that may be why they went into the house. But that is the only thing police themselves believe to be true. Wow. Wow. They said the police said they don't believe anything else about his story. So, but like you have a fight with your girlfriend and so you kill two little girls. That's just that's that Well, and Maxine never me. confirmed if they actually did have a fight or not. Well, she wouldn't, would she? That's what I'm saying. So, they may or may not fuck. have had a fight. So, well, her, her pictures on the internet Yes, but whatever she's, whatever her new name is and all of that is strictly prohibited to be released. The high court said in order to protect her and her own mental health and her, and to prevent her from being attacked, her secret identity will never be, is not allowed to be released ever. Because her mental health is so important. I don't think Ian will ever be released, but um, he is still currently in prison. So there's that. I think Maxine should still be in prison, but to each their own, I guess. I wonder if she still writes home love letters. Anyway, um, that's it for this week, y'all. Yes, it's I'm a, sorry. So it's a long one. It's a good one. It's a good one. Um, we will see you uh, next week. Yes. Until then, if you see something, say something. Yes. I mean, 100%. Oh, my God. And uh, just... <laughs> Please be kind to one another, and we will see you next week. Bye! You can hear the cicadas.